prophet, a good teacher, a religious leader, a revolutionary, a spiritual guide, the Son of God. Many have described him in different ways, but who was Jesus really? How did his humble group of followers turn into the world's largest religion? Join us in January as we investigate the beginning of the Jesus Revolution. Investigating Jesus, a revolution begins. A new series at Stapleton Church. Born in a rural village in the Middle East, he is now worshipped by over two billion people. But who was this man really? Is he actually God? Or has a mere human been elevated by myths and legends? This December, investigate for yourself the historical origins of Jesus. Investigating Jesus Origins at Stapleton Church. Good morning again. Felt like I was just here. No, you're not in some weird in-between Christmas and New Year's trance. It is still me. Um, yeah, so it's an exciting morning. Uh, I got a lot to do today, but that's fun and exciting to lead worship and bring you God's word today. Uh, Matt is out. Bobby is out uh, visiting some family. So Grant and I are kind of running the show in here and Ariel's out there. So that's exciting. Well, no, please. That wasn't for compliments. Please. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. Uh, it was super exciting for Sarah and I to see the joy of even our, you know, four, almost five month old pulling out the tissue paper. That was her favorite part by far. She loved the tissue paper more than any gift or present that we got her. But it was just so exciting to be able to experience the joy of Christmas through the eyes of a child. Um, so I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. If you're still out there traveling, if you're watching online right now, and maybe you're sitting in an airport or watching on a plane, um, we're so glad that you can join us on our live stream. Uh, as many of you know, my name is Sawyer Trapp. I'm one of our pastors here, and I get the joy to bring you the word this morning. But before we jump into that, I have some really awesome and wonderful news to share. Um, as many of you know, uh, if you were here on Christmas Eve, we took an offering uh, supporting the five Give Joy organizations that we partnered with this holiday season, uh, Operation Christmas Child, Ashley Elementary, Denver Ignite Ministries, um, Beth Ann's uh, Foundation for the Next Generation, and then the African Community Center. Um, so we took an offering, and we're going to split that five ways. And you all, thank you so much. You gave so generously. We raised over, let's see. $2,750. So that means each one of those organizations is going to get $550 from our church. That's so exciting. That deserves a clap. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for giving and giving generously. That's going to do a lot of good, not only in our community, but in Estonia um, and helping those people to get some joy around the holidays. So that's very, very exciting. Thank you so much. And also, if you volunteered at all on Christmas Eve, whether you were up here on stage, uh, leading worship, doing announcements, doing a welcome, being a greeter, if you made Christmas cookies, whatever you did, thank you so much. We definitely could not have done it without you. So thank you so much for all of that. Right now, though, we're going to continue our Investigating Jesus series. Um, if you did join us on Christmas Eve, Matt kind of gave us the account in Luke 
of the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, the actual happening of Jesus coming into the world as a baby, put in a manger, worshipped by shepherds, and that's so exciting. But now the question is, now what? Now what? What do we do now that Jesus is here? Where do we go from here? And Luke actually does something pretty interesting. Unlike many of the other accounts of the Gospels who skip from his birth, that they mention it, to his public ministry, Luke includes these two accounts of Jesus' childhood. What Jesus was like as a child. And so as we seek this morning, as we continue to investigate who Jesus is, what he did, and why his life, death, and resurrection still have significance today, we're going to ask the question, what does Jesus' childhood, if anything, contribute to that? What does the childhood of Jesus tell him, tell us, excuse me, about the person that he would grow up to be? If you have kids in this room, um, you probably have a baby book. And Sarah and I are working on ours right now and trying to put in all the memories and pictures and photos and descriptions of her birth, of Lucy's birth, of what her first few years of life are going to be like. Maybe a picture from her preschool class and her kindergarten class. And this book is going to be filled by the time that she's five years old. It's going to be filled with memories and emotions and feelings. And so when Lucy gets older and she begins to ask, like, what was I like as a kid? We can pull that out and show it to her. We can say, here's a picture of you right after you were born, like minutes within you being born. Here's what you look like when you were in preschool and kindergarten and first grade and so forth. We're going to have all those amazing memories that we can look back on. Pictures that we can jump back right to that memory and experience the joy again. But the interesting thing about childhood today is that we actually care about it. Now it might be interesting to say, of course I care about my child, but actually caring about childhood in the course of history is pretty recent. It's really only from about the 1900s that children were even given a spot in the home. Of course, they were cared for and loved, but the children didn't really matter until they became adults. Yes, maybe pictures were taken, they were cared for and loved, but the obsession that we have over childhood today meticulously following each, things that our, each thing that our child does would be completely foreign to the first century, to the world of Jesus. And so it's interesting that Luke, in his orderly account of Jesus, as he's seeking to present the best evidence, the most convincing evidence for who Jesus is, that he even mentions anything about Jesus' childhood. It would be likely, as we see in other biographies from the first century, to perhaps just quickly mention when they were born, perhaps mention their parents, and then jump to them being an adult. That was very common practice. Those are the things that we see even in royalty. 
But as we look at the accounts of the childhood of Jesus today, we really need to dive into them because it's remarkable that they're even there. And that should tell us that it's because Luke included them when paper is expensive, writing is unimaginably exclusive. If Luke took the time, the space, and the finances to write these accounts down, they must have something very important to tell us. And I hope we can discover that together this morning. So we're in Luke 2, continuing right after the birth of Jesus, starting in verse 22. And it starts off like this. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses... Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem and presented him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. So what is going on here? Because we don't have these purification rites. We are later uh, in our second service going to have the opportunity to dedicate some children to the Lord. And it's so awesome that we get to talk about Jesus' own dedication on a day that we get to celebrate families stepping up and saying, God, I give this blessing of a child back to you and pray and bless them today. So that's so exciting. But what is going on here? And why does it matter? So the purification rites that it's talking about in this passage go all the way back to Leviticus. And this would happen after a woman would have a child, she would actually be declared unclean and would be unable to go to the temple. And so 40 days after the birth of a son, the entire family would go to the temple and they would do some sacrifices and that would return the woman to ceremonial cleanliness. And that seems really tedious and to our modern first century eyes, perhaps Maybe even a little sexist. But I think what is going on here is they're trying to follow the law. Trying to follow the law to the best of their abilities. This presentation of Jesus, this presenting to the Lord, goes back to Genesis 13, excuse me, Exodus 13 where we see God speaking to Moses, reminding him of what he had just done for him and for the people, bringing them out of Egypt, sparing them from the last and most intense plague, the taking of the firstborn child. If you remember the account from Sunday school class, it goes a little something like this, that Moses had gone to Pharaoh and had asked him to let the Israelites go, and he had said no, and so God sends these various plagues, ten of them, the last one being the death of the firstborn. And Moses, instru- Moses and Aaron instruct the Israelites to enjoy a meal together, to sacrifice a lamb, and to put the lamb's blood over the doorpost, so that When this plague happens, their firstborn children will be spared. And so all of the Egyptians, their their firstborn children die, but the Israelites are passed over. It's where we get the celebration of Passover from. And so God, in that, says, from now on, since your firstborns have been spared, have been saved, You are to dedicate them back to me. 
to present them to the Lord. To acknowledge that God is the giver of all good and wonderful things. So as interesting and perhaps captivating as that may be, why does this matter for us today? Because we don't have purification rites. We do dedicate our children, but we don't do it in the same reasons or for the same reasons that the Israelites did, that the people of God did. And I think it matters for two reasons. As we seek to investigate who Jesus is and whether he really is who he said he was, the Son of God, God in the flesh, sent to live a perfect life and to die in our place, then it actually matters what Jesus did even in his earliest days and what his parents did. Jesus at this point is 40 days old, about a six-week-old. But if this didn't take place, even if Jesus was perfect for the rest of his life, he couldn't honestly say that he fulfilled the law. Because this is one of the requirements that God had laid down for his people. The ways that they are to live. The things that are supposed to separate them from the other people of the world to show that they're special. That they're his people. That they're living differently. So if Mary and Joseph and the young six-week-old Jesus didn't go to the temple, do these purification rites, and dedicate their child to the Lord, then Jesus couldn't be who he would claim to be. God in the flesh. To live a perfect life. So he could save all who believe. So it matters for that reason. But I think it's also interesting that Jesus is presented back to God. It's a little weird, right? If God is in the flesh and being presented back to God, it kind of just seems like a weird obligation, a weird hoop to jump through. God presenting himself back to himself. It's just confusing, right? But I think there's something else going on here. Think about what happened at Passover. The firstborn was spared by the blood of the Lamb. People were saved by another sacrifice in their place. I don't think it's a coincidence that this early in Jesus' life, it is already pointing to what he is going to do. The sacrifice he himself is going to make in our place, saving us. It's almost as if God planned it that way. I really think he did. That all the way back, thousands of years before, as God is rescuing his people out of the captivity of slavery in Egypt, God is already planning this moment. Where Jesus would be dedicated, be presented back to the Lord as a reminder of the saving that God has already done at the Exodus. Our God is amazing. His foresight, his connection, his weaving together, his plan of salvation all the way back from Genesis. Never deviating, always planning to send Jesus into the world to save it. So it matters for Jesus' perfect life and it already points back to the sacrifice, excuse me, points forward to the sacrifice that he's going to be. And following these purification rites and these 
sacrifices, two interesting encounters happen. Two interactions with people at the temple that have a lot to tell us about who Jesus is going to be. The first one is a man with, is with a man named Simeon, a righteous man, a follower of God who had followed him his whole life and was getting close to his death. But he had prayed to God and God had promised him that he would not die until he had seen with his own eyes the Lord's Messiah, the coming Savior, the Messiah that had been promised through the prophets that had been hoped for for ages. And you have to imagine, as each day as Simeon wakes up, as his bones ache, as his body starts to break down, he has to be asking himself, God, it's got to be sometime soon, right? Like, my body is starting to fail me, but you have promised that I will see your Messiah before I die. And so Simeon had woken up that day, and had felt a leading from the Spirit to go to the temple, as I'm sure he had many times before, being a righteous follower of God. And as he enters the temple, he sees Mary and Joseph and the six-week-old baby Jesus, and he is overwhelmed because he is seeing the Lord's Messiah, the Savior of the world, the baby, the child, the person that he had been waiting for. And his words are so beautiful. He says in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and to the glory of your people Israel. My eyes have finally seen your salvation. This eyes that are starting to perhaps become blurry. This body that is starting to fail him. But he rejoices. Because he has finally seen the person, the Messiah that he has been waiting for. Not only for his people, the people of Israel, the glory that that the heavens have declared that the prophets have, have prophesied about for decades. But no, even at this moment, and I've never caught this before, that even as Jesus is a six-week-old young baby, that Simeon is declaring that he is not only the hope of Israel and of God's people, but of all the nations, that he is a revelation to the Gentiles. Gentiles are just anyone who is not Jewish. That's you. That's me. That Jesus is not only the hope and the glory of Israel, but he is the salvation of all. Think about, think about what this must have been like for Mary and Joseph. (laughs) That they're going to do what the law has told them to do, that they're trying to be faithful to what God has called them to, to be the parents, the earthly parents of the Savior of the world pretty difficult task in its own right. And as they're going about this, they're stopped by this old man who comes and declares that their child is not only the salvation of Israel, but the salvation of the entire world. 
They just had to be continued to be overwhelmed again and again and again at God's blessing to them. And soon after, another person comes up, a prophetess, Anna, who, her, who herself was widowed at a young age and had, had been waiting a long time and was perhaps curious why she was even around anymore. She was faithful to God, spending day and night in the temple, it says. And as once Simeon has completed his blessing over the young baby Jesus, she comes up and she worships him. She gathers everyone she can around in the temple and thanks God that his Messiah is finally here, sharing with them that the redemption of Jerusalem and the world is here. I don't think many days were ordinary in, in the household of Jesus. <laughs> have you ever thought of what it would have been like to be a parent to Jesus? I think it would have been kind of fun, right? You know that Jesus was God. And so I think you would have had an interesting reverence for your child. You think it would be hard. Maybe it would be super difficult. Like Jesus had all the answers. I think he might have been... Not in a mean way, but maybe a bit of a know-it-all. I don't know. I think it just would have been super interesting. But each day would have just been filled with so much blessing and joy. I can maybe comprehend it, having a new child, being able to celebrate each day when I get to wake her up and her face fills with a smile as she sees me or Sarah. Just thinking about it brings a huge smile to my face. But being able to experience one-on-one, being able to help raise the Savior of the world must have been something extraordinary. And Luke writes that as these different people come up to them in the temple, Mary and Joseph are just marveling at what is happening. This section ends, as we'll see, in a very similar way to our next account from Jesus' childhood. It ends in verse 40, and Luke writes, he says, And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. That even Jesus, despite being the Savior of the world, despite being God in the flesh, had to do the regular things of childhood, had to figure out how to crawl, to walk, to eat solid foods, to talk even, that the Savior of the world grew up, that he figured out how to live. But the unique thing is, is that the grace of God was upon him. Yes, God's grace is for all people. But this baby, this 40-day-old, this six-week-old child, was God in the flesh. Declared So, not only by the angels before his birth, by the star above his birthplace, by the shepherds coming to worship him, and by these people who had been waiting a long time to see the Messiah, this baby is something different. How many of you enjoy a good Christmas movie? I know I do. A lot of hands out there. Uh, my, my personal favorite has to be Elf. 
And it's so silly, it's kind of stupid humor, but that's, that's, it just appeals to me. And my favorite scene in that movie is when he's fresh to New York and he's looking around the sights and sounds and he sees a small diner with a neon sign that declares world's best cup of coffee. And he goes in and, congratulations, you did it, world's best cup of coffee. That's so awesome. Perhaps that's the indication of the joy that we should have around Christmas. But maybe for you, it's a different movie. Perhaps you're a more of a classical person. You like It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on 34th Street. But I think one of the most interesting Christmas movies, yes, it takes place on Christmas and maybe has a warm, happy ending, follows the story of a young boy left at home for the holidays. You can go to the next slide. Ah! Yes, home alone. Young Kevin McAllister is left at his family's home as the entire family travels to Europe, and there's that harrowing scene. Now being a parent, I think I realize how crazy and concerning and fearful it would be to have that moment, as Kevin's mom does on the plane, where she's sitting there, and she realizes that her young son is left home alone. But the interesting thing is, this is not just a funny Christmas movie. It actually points us to the next account in the life of Jesus, the next account of Jesus' childhood. It jumps from 40 days old, from six weeks old, to when Jesus is a preteen, the age of 12, and his family has traveled from Nazareth, back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Another tie into Passover. I think there's a theme that's trying to be weaved into these accounts of uh, Jesus' childhood. And as the family celebrates together, they share a meal, they go to the temple, and the family heads out. And they get about a day journey away from Jerusalem. And just like the mom sitting on the airplane... Jesus' own parents come to the same realization. (laughs) They have not left their young boy home alone, but they've left him alone in Jerusalem. Think about the grief they must be feeling, the embarrassment, the the fearfulness of their child. Not only have they left their young preteen boy in Jerusalem, a busy, bustling metropolis, but they've lost the Savior of the world. (laughs) That had to be so crazy. Like They had to have been freaking out like, Joseph, I thought you, you were with him. No, 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 Mary, I thought you had him. And they're going around, they're looking around the camp. Maybe they were traveling in a big group. Maybe he's around with other people. And they realize that he is not there. That he has been left temple alone. And so they travel back to Jerusalem. And we, that's where we pick up our text. We continue in verse 20, excuse me, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. Let's just stop right there. Three days. So this is like four days. This is like most of a week that Jesus has just been on his own, caring for himself, figuring things out. I wonder what was going through Jesus' mind. Like, all right, this is a weird thing that you're doing to me, God, but I'm just going with it. So they finally find him after four days. 
one day of travel and three days looking for him. And they find him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And so you can imagine the scene in your head. Frantically, Mary and Joseph, and I'm sure a lot of other people who have been traveling with him, have been running around the city trying to find Jesus. And as they finally discover him, as they finally find the young boy, the 12-year-old, he's gathered around by teachers in the temple, teachers of the law, people who would have had the familiarity with the Old Testament, would have memorized it. And he's talking with them, asking questions. And as it says in verse 48, they were astonished. They don't know. How is this young child, this 12-year-old, asking these questions? How does he have such a familiarity with the Scriptures? They're treating him as an equal. They're talking to him as they would talk amongst themselves as they discussed how to apply and live according to God's law. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Rightfully so, right? They have been concerned and fearful for four days about where Jesus has been. And to find out that he's been in the temple, learning and growing, asking questions, being shaped by the very words of Scripture that he helped write. You would be astonished, right? But I think in the next section... There's that moment of astonishment. And then Mary and Joseph come to their senses and they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? We thought you were with us. We thought you had come with us. And we find that you're in the temple, which is great. We love that you're going to temple. That's super. But we we would have loved for you to travel with us. We've been worried sick. And there's one of the reasons why I think Jesus, maybe it perhaps comes off that he was a bit of a know-it-all. Because I think we can almost imagine the young preteen Jesus, yes, being the Savior of the world, yes, being God incarnate, but yes, being a preteen, would chuckle to himself and say, Guys, wouldn't you know I'd be in my father's house? That I would be studying the scriptures? There's no need to be concerned. I am where I'm supposed to be. And so the family comes back together, and maybe Jesus was grounded for a little while, I don't know, but. And the family comes back together and travels back to Nazareth. And the next section, we jump all the way to John the Baptist. To the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So we have these short, little ideas of what Jesus' childhood was like. At a six-week-old being presented in the temple being praised and worshipped by people who had waited for the Messiah their whole life, and as a young boy, sitting in the temple, asking questions, reading the scriptures, talking to the teachers of the law. And the section ends exactly the same way as Jesus' presentation in the temple. In verse 52, Luke sums up this section of Jesus' childhood by writing, 
And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor, favor with both God and man. That the young child Jesus grew in wisdom. Despite being the savior of the world, the Messiah, he still had to figure out how to live. We can imagine Joseph taking him under his wing, teaching him the family business of carpentry, having him help with chores, teaching him responsibilities. That he grew up, that he grew from a young boy, a baby, a young boy to a man. But that last section, that last section of this verse is significant. That he grew in favor with God and with people. That despite being like any other child, figuring out how to live, getting taller, eating more, Jesus was different. He wasn't an ordinary child. He was the Son of God. God in the flesh, sent on a rescue mission. But I think the thing that we need to realize this morning, and perhaps a good way to shape these two accounts in our mind, is if Jesus, the Savior of the world, the baby who would grow up into the man who would heal people, who would break down social barriers, and would give his life as a sacrifice for you and for me, if that person, if Jesus needed to grow up, then we probably have some growing up to do too. I think these two accounts from the life of Jesus point us to the idea that we all need to grow up. If we're adults, it may not be physical growth, but I think if we're truly honest, as we look forward to a new decade, as we perhaps think about a, revol- or, excuse me, a resolution for the next year, perhaps it should be spiritual growth. That when we actually think about it, we all have areas in our life where we need to grow up. We all need to grow up. If you're a child or a teenager, perhaps for you, like Jesus, it's actually physically growing up. Figuring out the way the world works. Learning how to be responsible for yourself. And experiencing the joy of that young childlike faith right now. To set yourself up for a journey of faith with Jesus. If you're in the early part of your adult years, of college, of maybe first steps into your career... What a great opportunity to start off the next decade with declaring, God, I want to seek you more. As I get settled in my life, as I set myself up for the rest of my time on this earth, I want to dedicate it to you. Perhaps you're already settled in your career and your family, and you're at a point in your life where you're beginning to wonder, is there something more? For a while, my job had satisfied me. My family, being a parent, had satisfied me. But now I'm reaching a point where I'm starting to realize, is this all there is? And when we're faced with that question, 
it's a great opportunity for grow because the question, the answer to the question is yes. There is so much more than the things of this life. As we dive deeper and deeper into God, as we seek Him first, as we dedicate our life back to Him, perhaps straying for a while, but jumping back in, in prayer, in worship, God will reveal so much more in our lives, that purpose, that meaning that we all long for. Perhaps for you, you're looking towards the end of your life. You're getting up in age and you're starting to realize that the end may be in sight. (laughs) And as you look forward to the future, you don't know what that holds. You have a lot more to look back on than you do to look forward to. You've experienced your job and your family, perhaps even having grandkids or great-grandkids, and you're beginning to start to reconcile, to wrestle with your life coming to a close. And out of position of humility, of what I can say to you who have experienced so much more than I have as a 27-year-old, I still want to challenge you to grow up. (laughs) Because I think you have so much great wisdom and experience to share with the other people in your life, to encourage those in your family, to speak truth to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. These are the things that I've learned. These are the mistakes that I've made. I don't want you to have to make them. And so as you take on this role of an encourager, as a mentor, as a figure of advice and support, push into that. Pray over your family, over your friends, and continue to grow Because God is not done with you yet. We all have some growing to do. And that's exactly what this quote pushes us to. I'm going to have to turn around because I don't have the TV. It is not the number of books you read, nor the variety of sermons, nor the amount of religious conversation in which you mix but it is the frequency and earnestness which you meditate on these things till the truth in them becomes part of your being. That ensures your growth. Frederick W. Robertson was one of the most plain-spoken British clergy people and captivated around him in the 19th century many people who wouldn't have ordinarily come to faith. And I love this quote. It's not just the sermons you hear. It's not the conversations you have. It's not even reading the Bible, as good as that is. It's applying those to your life. It's one thing to have a lot of knowledge, but if it doesn't make its way down to your heart and to the actions that you do, the ways that you are, if it doesn't become part of your being, then it doesn't matter. Our growth in God 
should be evident in the things that we do, the interactions that we have with other people, the relationships we hold, the love we have for other people. It's exactly what the writer of Romans writes in Romans 12 when he says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Only then will you be able to test and affirm what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This word transformed there in the Greek is a passive imperative. A passive imperative. So it's not something that we do, but an imperative is a thing that we do. We need to allow God to change us. Yes, the change comes from God. It allows, excuse me, it happens when the Holy Spirit speaks truth into our lives, motivates us to act, to reconcile, to love. But we have a role in that. The message, a paraphrasing of the Bible, I think sums this up so well with the exact same verse. It says this, Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. So as we look forward to 2020, a new year, a new decade, I challenge you. To figure out the area that you need to grow up in and make it your resolution this year. Yes, we can maybe all use to exercise more, to have a better diet, and do those things too. But choose one thing this year, an area that you need to grow in. Perhaps for you, it's prayer. That you try time and time again to raise your requests up to God. And that may happen for a few days, but it falls off again. Commit this year to prayer. Perhaps for you, you hear sermons on a Sunday morning and go to church, but your faith stays in this place. Perhaps for you, it's taking your faith into your workplace, into your family, into the relationships that you have, and allowing God to change them from the inside out. Perhaps for you, you're sitting in this room today, perhaps for the first time in a church, and you're saying, I don't even know what all this is about, but I'm captivated by Jesus. And so I challenge you to make your resolution to investigate Jesus in 2020. To take our starting point class, to bring the questions that you have and find that God has amazing answers for them. And that God loves you and cares about you even more than you can fathom. But the truth is this. That if Jesus, the Savior of the world, had to grow up, we all do too. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, for bringing us to this place to worship you. You are a God that is good a God that cares about each one of us, who knows us uniquely and who loves us still the same. God, as we, as we talked about the childhood of Jesus today, 
I pray that the people in this room would be captivated by your spirit, God, that you would place on their heart the area of growth that will be most beneficial to them, that you would place on my heart the same, God. That this next year, this next decade of life, God, would just be a time when we can all declare together at the end of this year, God, you have grown us. You have shaped us, you have molded us through adversity, through pain, through hardship, to be more and more like your son. To grow in wisdom and to grow in favor with you and with the people around us. God, we thank you and we dedicate this year to you. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen.